Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 9, Mark 9. We will make it through this chapter sometime. Jesus is making the most of every opportunity he has to teach his disciples what he knew they needed to know in order to proclaim and teach the truths about him and his kingdom to other people after his resurrection. In other words, the lessons of the cross had to be communicated before the fact to the twelve. They obviously did not understand all this yet, and we see that in verse 32 here in Mark chapter 9. But they were receiving the information and the explanations that would make sense after the fact when Jesus had risen from the dead. Many times we feel exactly the same way when we're learning important things that somebody else tells us are important but we don't see it yet. So we should be able to identify with these men and to some degree. Two times so far in Mark, Jesus has plainly told the 12 disciples what was going to happen to him. He must suffer many things and be delivered over to the authorities who were, who were rejecting him, be killed, and then after three days, rise from the dead. And I'm sure you realize that as Jesus was communicating these facts to these men, they were his followers, which meant, oh, that can't happen to Jesus because that means it probably will happen to me. And after each of these explanations, the disciples made it clear that they really had no idea what he meant, or why. After the first time, in chapter 8, Peter began to rebuke Jesus. And after the second time he explained these things, the disciples had a huge argument about which of them is the greatest. Which of them is the greatest. It's interesting to read all the commentaries and articles about that particular argument. We don't know for sure. But we know who the inner circle was, Peter, James, and John. Peter, we know, had no trouble usually expressing what was on his mind. And don't forget what the nickname was for the two brothers, James and John, Sons of Thunder. The rest of those men, who knows who wanted to be included in that conversation as being the greatest. Jesus took advantage of the disciples' quest for their own glory and greatness to teach. He made the most of these opportunities to show them what was really important and God-honoring. In other words, it was, in to- it was a time for intense teaching now. And Jesus, in chapter 9, verses 33 through 41, used two situations the disciples were involved in to focus on two particular attitudes that he had to get across to these men were absolutely necessary for ministry. And last week we covered the first and most important attitude necessary for ministry in verse 33 through 37. And that was a servant's attitude. And he said something after he asked the men what they'd been discussing. They didn't answer. And can you picture him looking around the room they were in, looking in their eyes and saying, if anyone would be first, He must be last of all and servant of all. And then Jesus summoned a child 
into his arms to illustrate the point. We are to receive all of God's people as we do children with no thought of their accomplishments or their influence or their fame or their gifts, but simply because they are God's children. And this then rules out seeking the powerful and the influential people for what they can do for us. Because that is so often the case. And this is a warning about, on the other side of the coin, neglecting the simple, the humble, and the ordinary. And today we will look at the second, a second attitude necessary for ministry in verses 38 through 41. If you were able, would you please stand as I read Mark 9 verses 38 through 41 doesn't look very long because it isn't, but it packs a punch. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. I found out this week, kind of assumed it, but it's hard to find people that are willing to really get into this passage. And I think you know the reason. Because each and every one of us have to deal with this particular attitude. And it takes a whole lot of work to know how to apply it. Because we also know so many other scriptures in the New Testament especially that deal with how to have a relationship or how to get in a situation with a person who claims the name of Christ, but who is doing something vastly different from what we think they should be doing. That means then that what we think they should be doing has to be evaluated honestly in our hearts so that we have the call of Christ upon us very clearly delineated. And many times we start off with clear delineations and find out new information and it takes us on a path that we would just not, we just don't want to be on. This is hard. It's very hard to think through. And it amazes me that Jesus says so much in such a short passage. We'll try to work through this this morning. Try. Depend on God to open up our eyes to the main truth here. So, a second attitude that's necessary for ministry, that's really dependent on applying the first one, being willing to be a servant of all, is anyone not against us is for us. Just let that sink in, because I'm sure you see many of the implications already. When Jesus had rebuked the disciples for their argument about which of them was the greatest, what seems like one of the things that happened is that John's conscience began to trouble him about a recent incident that all of the disciples had been involved in. And John then speaks up 
in verse 38, telling Jesus that they had seen someone casting out demons in his name, in Jesus' name, and that they tried to stop him. Their reason for stopping him was what? Because he was not following us. In other words, he was not one of them. And how did Jesus respond? Well, here, at least what's recorded, he doesn't say very much, does he? Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, there's a lot going on in those, in those words, isn't there? So think about this. This man they're talking about was apparently a believer in Christ. But most certainly, he is not as informed as the twelve disciples. In other words, he was not using Jesus' name as a magical formula like we see some other people in the New Testament who wanted to have this power. He's not using Jesus' name in that way. In this man's heart, Jesus' name was his reality. However uninformed he was otherwise. And when the twelve disciples insisted that he stop, he didn't. Can you see how you would be responding? I don't know. Are you guys okay? I kind of know exactly how I would. You'd be like, oh, now wait a minute. He didn't have the same color t-shirt as we do. He's not on the same team. But probably what really got the twelve's goat was that this man was successfully casting out demons. Whoa. Remember very recently, right after the transfiguration, back in verses 14 through 18, the disciples found themselves powerless to cast out an unclean spirit. Remember, as the three came down from the mount, the rest of them were, had been asked by a father to cast out this unclean spirit from his son, and they couldn't do it. And yet, ever since Jesus had called them and sent them, they had been able to, in Jesus' name, with that authority, they thought, to be able to cast out a demon. And then they find this guy, that they didn't even know who he was, But this man showed he was a genuine believer of the Lord because he genuinely acknowledged the real author of the miracles he presided over, who was Jesus the Christ. Now I want to mention, to give us a little perspective here, three other biblical situations that deal with exactly the same kind of situation. Our question and what their responses were. Remember, when Paul was in prison, he wrote some pastoral epistles, and in one of them, in Philippians, in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 1, he writes something that's very informative for us. And here we go. You'll see what's going on. Paul's in prison. He was the main missionary. He was the one that people were looking to in these kind of uh, questionable areas as far as spreading the gospel. And he writes this. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, the ones with goodwill knowing that 
I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Following this? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What? Is this the same Paul that wrote the Galatians letter and said, if you don't have the gospel down because you don't, you're requiring works, circumcision in particular, then you're accursed? Yeah, it's the same person. See how much we have to think through? We won't have a little outline today that says, check this side off and you're a go. Check this side off and you just leave them alone. That's not going to happen. But we do need to think about it. So Paul says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ was claimed and in that I rejoice. Now obviously, what the Galatians or those guys that were messing with the Galatians were proclaiming was not Christ. It was Christ plus works. That's part of the things that we need to, to be able to think through. In other words, we've got to know what these doctrines are so that we can properly apply them. Now back in the Old Testament, after the Lord sent his spirit upon the newly chosen 70 elders of Israel after they erected the tabernacle in the wilderness. Um, the tabernacle was apart from the camp at that point. And so they were over at the camp and God put his spirit on these 70 men and they were um, prophesying and teaching. But back in the camp, Joshua found out that there were two men who have great names, by the way. El dad and me dad. And that is how you pronounce them. El dad and me dad were prophesying or preaching in the camp. And then Joshua, finding this out, asked Moses to, quote, stop them. And in Numbers 11, verse 29, we find what Moses said Are you jealous on my account? Joshua, you ever been jealous for somebody else? Try to stop something from happening because it's, it's their really job and they, you don't want anybody sliding in? See what they're doing? What Joshua's doing? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them, is what Moses said. Yes, the harsh man who took the law and gave it to his people, who was just really harsh and tough sometimes, says this. Are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. In other words, what was he telling Joshua, who was his right-hand man, next in line, faithful? What? He's saying... You can't control this, Joshua. I put my spirit on these two guys, which the word tells us. Not just the 70 over here, but, you know, sometimes I, I do things you don't expect. And there's another example that's more close to home, and that is the followers, the disciples of John the Baptist. Okay? John the Baptist's disciples sounded very much like Jesus' disciples in this incident. When they saw Jesus' ministry expanding, um, they said to John the Baptist, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. 
And John the Baptist answered in John chapter 3, starting at verse 27, one of the best-known passages in the New Testament. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. Do you like that? John the Baptist, the last great prophet of really Old Testament character. As Jesus came, prepared his way by preaching his gospel of repentance. which opened the door for Jesus' actual gospel message being proclaimed clearly again in himself. But you, you can understand how these guys felt, couldn't you? Can't you? John the Baptist was an eccentric beyond eccentricity. What he wore, what he ate, where he was, and what he said. And people from all over Judea and northern part of Israel were going to him to be baptized. His message was heard everywhere and the word just spread. And he had disciples that followed him and that he taught. Have you ever noticed how many times it's the disciples of the leader that are the ones getting off? And so they saw and were part of John's ministry, which means they were probably there or around or close enough to know what's going on when Jesus came himself for John's baptism, a different kind of baptism, but Jesus did it as one of his ways that God would show the anointing on his ministry now beginning to be public. And it didn't take very long for people then to gravitate to Jesus, to hear him. And John's disciples were left going, what's going on here? And you're going, haven't you been listening to John the whole time? I'm preparing the way for the coming Messiah. He's here. You know that. I am not him. And these guys, even hearing that and maybe knowing it, could not do what? They could not humble themselves with the same call as the one they were following in order to learn and follow Christ, which is the whole point. At least not here. We know later in Acts that many, many, many of them did. But they had to have an explanation about it. That is our natural bent. We follow or are impressed by someone. We follow them. If anybody else comes that has a powerful message that may be true, if it is, it wrangles us. If it's off and we know that, there is warrant to hold back. But if they're preaching who Christ is, And the gospel is being proclaimed, which means you cannot get to God on your own. You have a sin problem. You cannot stand before God on your own. And the message is that Jesus is the one who was sent by God to live the perfect life demanded of each and every one of us. Only he live that life, which means only he could be the sacrifice that would die in our place, take the condemnation from the Father on himself instead of 
us taking it. And if we believe in him, as we believe in him, his righteousness is transferred to us and we will be able to stand before God. Stand before God. Because we're clothed in someone else's righteousness, not ours, because we don't have any. If that's the message, then guess what? What Paul says. Only that in every way. Whether in pretense, which sort of means if you're doing it for the wrong reason. But if the message is coming out, God will use it. If Christ is proclaimed, the question is, can we rejoice with that? doesn't mean they have to become your best friend the next week. But it means you probably need to think about what is said about that person or what is not said about that person or group. In other words, in our circles, nothing much has changed, right? Most of you know who Chuck Swindoll is. He used to be one of the best-known Evangelical Free Church of America pastors. He's still pastoring, but his church is so big in, in, in North Dallas and, and it covers so many different groups. They're not officially officiated, I mean, I mean um, identified with the EFCA anymore. But that doesn't mean they're denying it either. Anyway, you know who Chuck Swindoll is. He wrote this. It's a curious fact that jealousy is a tension often found among professionals, the gifted, the highly competent, you know, doctors, singers, artists, lawyers, businessmen and women, authors, entertainers, preachers, educators, politicians, and all public figures. Did he cover just about everybody? Strange, isn't it? that such capable folk find it nearly impossible to applaud others in their own field who excel a shade or two more than they. What is he talking about? Jealousy. Jealousy's fangs, he writes, may be hidden. But take care when the creature coils, no matter how cultured and dignified it may appear. Many of you have experienced that kind of attack that kind of situation in your own lives, whether it's professionally or from friends or whatever. And that's part of what is going on here. There's a lot involved in this little passage we're in. But part of it is this personal jealousy that just comes out of us. And it shows us what's still in our, in our sinful hearts. When someone else is succeeding and we don't, or we're not as much, or even if it's close, it becomes more competition than it does anything else. So in our circles, it's far easy to drift, because that's, I think, a good way to explain what happens to us. It's not like we start out planning to undercut or Undermine, but we may be drifting in our attitudes, in our hearts, from the legitimate concern to uphold the truth of Scripture and stand against false teaching, which we are called to do. That must be our task, one of our main ones. But it's far too easy to drift from that to this other kind of attitude where we exclude from all fellowship and even slander these people, people who are the real thing, hopefully, but different from us in this way or that way. You've got to have use of some pretty good vocabulary to be able to express what these distinctions are if you get involved in these kind of talks. Now, while sometimes stretching us to the limits of doctrinal tolerance, the EFCA, the Evangelical Free Church of America, on the whole, does stand on and seek to uphold the person and work of Christ and scriptures very, very strongly. 
And they always have. And we should be very glad for that. Very glad. Jesus' teaching here gives guidance that continues to speak directly to our hearts and minds and behaviors. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. You understand that? That shows a trust in who God is, how big he is, how he works. And most of the time it's bigger than us. We can make the distinction clear. We may ask some questions to get things in line. We may choose not to directly, you know, uh, hold hands with this group over here in this particular situation. We can do all that, but we still got to have this attitude as our basis. Always be seeking to see and, and glorying in the fact if, in fact, Jesus' name is lifted up. And notice in this, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ... That's kind of key. Will by no means lose his reward. Notice that what makes the cup of water so precious is that it's given to someone because that someone belongs to Christ. There should be this incredible devotion to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus regards such a gift And here's why. Jesus regards such a gift as being given to himself. How? You know the answer. The underlying idea comes from, Jesus says it in Matthew 25, 40. He said that as you did it to one of these, you did it to me. You know what? That is precious to know. That can be the motivation to make you take that step. Make the phone call. Reach out to so-and-so. Care about that person. Just that part right there. The underlying idea then is that believers are not their own, but We belong to Christ, and that's the ground that this proper attitude for serving grows in. John and the other disciples did not serve that man with a proper Christ-like attitude. If you were one of the twelve, even though you were an ex-tax collector... It's interesting who Jesus chose to be the twelve. How could you have approached that situation differently? See, this is what he wants them to learn because, man, when he is risen and the Holy Spirit is given to them, when he leads his people to, from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the farthest parts of the earth, The gospel is out there in some incredibly dangerous situations all over the Roman world. And sometimes we forget that. This attitude is so necessary, whether it's in that situation or on whatever street you live or that apartment complex or whatever it is. John and the other disciples. I think it's interesting that John's the one that brought this up. We need to think about that too. But they first of all thought themselves as greater than this man. Because they were Christ's immediate disciples and he wasn't. That's the easiest thing to fall into. Everywhere we are, no matter what you're good at, what group you're in, it's so easy to fall into that. And second of all, they tried to stop him from ministering to people when he was a person who belonged to Christ and was answerable to Christ, not them. Evidently, God was working through him. 
Obviously, that's why they were looking. And they didn't even ask any questions. They're trying to find out anymore. They just wanted him to stop. And third of all, by disrespecting and actually slandering this man, they were actually disrespecting and slandering who? Jesus Christ. This is... This was one of the main attractive features in 2006, 8, 10, 12, 14, 15, 16, 6 or 8, when was that? 8, whenever T4G started together for the gospel. Because we had in one room people from all over the country from different backgrounds, different denominations, different churches who were there specifically to give glory to Christ for the same gospel. Not a watered-down one, not adding to it, not taking away from it, but that was the most attractive thing to me on the face of the earth. It shouldn't be rare. (laughs) It should be what we look for. So if this man in our passage did belong to Christ, then what right did the disciples have to stop him and slander him? We don't know because they didn't ask any more questions, but it looks like not any from what Jesus said. There are, of course, many other mitigating factors, the main one being that the man John is speaking to Christ about, he wasn't trying to join their little group. We don't have any inclination of that. And he wasn't trying to create an alliance because he wouldn't stop when they asked him to. You just kind of go down a list and you can see, well, this is a little outside of our purview here. I thought we were in control of everything. The disciples demonstrated that they were very susceptible to being consumed by the desire to be great on their own merits. And what did Jesus do to that desire by his response to them? You know, and I believe this is what grieved John's conscience and led him to ask Christ about it all. Which, when you think about it, was really a good thing after all those rebukes and just feeling like we don't get it we don't get it John at least asked the question what was his nickname one of the sons of thunder but he was well on his way to claiming what he named himself In his gospel, we never see him identify himself by anything other than the disciple that Jesus, what, loved. And what we're seeing as Christ is getting closer to the cross is the gradual building of this foundation in these men's hearts and minds that they will be able to come back to after Christ's resurrection. These are tough lessons. We've got to admit it. These guys had some incredibly intense, tough lessons. They may have not understood them, but can you see afterwards, if you go through Acts and the rest of the New Testament, and you look at some of the things that happened, you can see that they were beginning to respond differently. Just like Blake made clear in Sunday school today, there there was changes in their hearts. There was fruit of the Spirit becoming seen in their hearts. And they were learning how to stand and when to stand and how to speak and when not to and what is important and what's not. And it's an incredibly 
incredibly interesting study. One of the first books I remember reading out of college that just fascinated me was this volume this big, which back in those days looked really huge, called The Training of the Twelve. It's a classic. And all it was, all it is, is going through the gospel accounts and seeing how Jesus trained what we could call 12 misfits that had been saved by the Lord. One of them on purpose wasn't, who actually played a part in the role of getting Jesus to the cross, but illustrated also the pain and the heartache of betrayal. Twelve. Three very close. Fascinating, if you want a good read. So, right now, these guys are floundering in faith, showing way too much bravado in their own, quote, strength, unquote. And when God connects the dots of who Jesus really is after the resurrection, they realize they have been given the Holy Spirit to indwell them, and then they will begin to operate out of what we've seen as this humble dependence, this repentant selflessness, repentant helplessness that allows them to understand who they belong to and whose glory this story is all about. And we need to ask ourselves, if they hadn't learned these lessons the hard way, would they have gotten this later, just automatically? I don't think so. Not most of the time. Each and every one of us usually has to learn these things in some way that goes, pow, maybe it's over a period of time and it finally makes sense. But it's not something you just all get in a classroom. They also will have this treasure of memories of Jesus' teaching brought back to them through the Word, through the way the Holy Spirit uses them to write much of the New Testament, through the, through the other fellowships of the other people. Um, it's incredible what they have to reflect on. And they compare these things and they understand their misadventures in a way they didn't before to remind them of their propensity just to wander, which doesn't put them in neutral, but it gives them just that tweak, am I trusting God as I'm going into this? Am I I really listening to what he's told us in his word? Am I putting this together right? Am I going to slander somebody that really does belong to him? Or am I going to give him grace and trust God with him? And on the other hand, am I going to stand up to somebody who is teaching false doctrine and try to get them to see the truth? Why? Because we care about the sheep who are hearing the false teaching. So all of this is going to bring them to places of growing in faith and sanctification in which they will continue to learn to focus on their task. And there's another phrase here. To focus on their task and leave the rest up to God. Are you noticing how much that's happening around here now? A lot. Our foundational criterion for ministry that should be to not not to be style, a certain style or a certain tradition or denomination even, but Jesus' name being lifted up and glorified. That's gotta be at the rock bottom of who we are. And that'll sift out a whole lot is Jesus' name being lifted up and glorified for who he really is. And we're to rejoice in that. And it is possible to operate with this mindset and to still be careful and biblically responsible about what we proclaim 
in how we proclaim it. Because a whole lot of the New Testament is written to help us do just those things. But we need to start out with this bigger picture in mind. And then our attitudes will be far more humble and Christ-like as we evaluate our own participation and our own responses. It's really only when our own desire and goal is to lift up the name of Christ and see his name glorified that we can truly be discerning. I'm absolutely convinced of that. We can't, I can't be discerning if my motives or somebody else's motives are wound in to who the Christ is I'm proclaiming. Our own desire and goal has to be to lift up the name of Christ and see his name glorified. And then this, these, these two attitudes, you know, Mark doesn't say, hey, here are the two attitudes you need. This is it. He's just showing what the most important one is, and then there's another one tagging along that we get blessed by here. The privilege of serving all. Hey, in our day, how often do you see that? Our world is teaching that everybody's got to have an angle. Do we have an angle? There should be no such angle. Our motive needs to be seriously simple. People are made in the image of God. We shouldn't expect sinners not to be sinners. I'm a sinner. He saved me. I don't know why. The reason why we say that is because there's nothing in us that caused him to save us. It's his choice. And because of Christ, it's the greatest privilege. We can't even put any more words in there because this is what life is about, to know the one who made us. And it's only through Jesus Christ. So let's try not to be less broad-minded than Paul. And let's not be more restrictive than Moses. And let's be more like John the Baptist, recognizing his place and call, recognizing our place and call, and rejoicing in the glory of Christ. In other words, let's follow the teaching of Jesus. And while we try and work hard to maintain what we regard as purity of doctrine. Let's reach out the hand of brotherhood to everyone who loves the Lord Jesus and build on the foundation of the word that he's given us. In doing this, we we pray that we can be instrumental in leading others to salvation in Christ to the glory of God. We are very privileged to have that privilege. And that comes through the way we talk to one another, the way we teach, what we're interested in, how we try to encourage. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word that calls us to account and lifts up the name of your son who has brought us into fellowship with you and with one another. Lord, we do pray for wisdom and discernment. It's so easy to get sidetracked from what you've called us to do, to be. Thank you that you have given us a specific call. You've placed us here. Oh Lord, let us see more and more clearly 
the needs, the purposes of people you put in our lives, to always be willing to proclaim the truth of salvation in Christ and always be willing to help and encourage when we can. Lord, we thank you that the weight of the world is not upon our individual shoulders, that you have a plan the way you use the people that you've brought to yourself in areas that we don't even know about. But so many times we hide or we're not willing to recognize who we belong to. It's you. And that we can be glad in what you've called us to do. The area of that we work in, that we go to school in, that we live in, families, uh, friends. And we just pray that, that we could be used by you in these, in these ways as we lift up Christ's name, as we humbly serve you, as we see and depend on your power for things that have always just been hard for us to do individually. Thank you that you have a purpose and that you are the sovereign Lord God Almighty. Thank you that we can serve Christ in every way, in every part of our day. Thank you that you're so patient with us. Thank you for giving us the examples of these people in the New Testament, especially who are walking with Jesus. And it took so long, it seems like, for them to get it. And Jesus was so patient with them, dealt so gently with them, and yet led them and used them to, to bring glory to you through him. We pray that we could also know that power, your love, your presence, your peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray as we remember to constantly lift up Kelly and Kim and Rodney's family. So many requests that we are privileged to bring before you. Keep them on our minds in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for our benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.